Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. You're less than a minute away from an interview, a look behind the scenes of the billionaire point one percenters with author and journalist Michael Mechanic. But real quick, let me remind you, it is Friday, and that means there's another edition of Tully Time at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. All sorts of salacious headlines, guns, drugs, orgies, COVID orgies, porn, COVID porn. Hell's Angel Hitman, illegal Swedish urination, a massive McFlurry conspiracy, and more. An unusually spicy edition of Tully Time, yours for the listening at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike Coming to you live on tape from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a senior editor and regular contributor at Mother Jones and the author of an intensely researched yet punchy and highly readable new book entitled Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Hello and welcome, Michael Mechanic. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I have to ask, what I can't be the only person who's listening to this. I'm sure you've answered this question a million times through what sort of uh, genealogical lineage does one come to acquire a last name like Mechanic? Well, I've never been asked this on a podcast, but um, it used to be Mechanic mm-hmm. with a K on it. Uh, it belonged to my grandfather, who was an Eastern European Jew li- living in Warsaw. So before the Second World War, he came over uh, when I think he was about 20. And um, Ellis Island, they said, you're now Mechanic. Yeah, that was the way it was. They they changed my father's first name on on the altar at a baptism. They used to be able to they used to be able to do that. Wow. It was a far less enlightened time. Also, in the book, in in passing, you mention your punk rock days. Who exactly who exactly are you, Michael Mechanic? <laughs> I've been a musician since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. You know, um, playing piano at four. I played in bands all through high school. Uh, started a little punk rock record label called Bad Monkey Records when I was living in Santa Cruz. Cool. Uh, the latest, the last band I had was called The Gods Hate Kansas. And it was interesting because we actually once played in Kansas, uh, some all-ages show there, and, uh, you know, they ignored us mostly. Um, but, you know, it, it was fun. We uh, we had a few big moments. We opened for Fugazi. Cool. Uh, and then I, I had another band open for Green Day back at Gilman Street back in the day. That was kind of fun. And we, we made the flyer, so we were on top of it, and they were at the... They were the opener. Hey, if you're the guy that's got the Kinko money, you, you wield a lot of power. Exactly. That's right. Well, now nowadays, for uh, quite some time, you have been funneling your righteous indignation into uh, into journalism and into this book, which, as I mentioned in the intro, I, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and I'm enjoying it immensely. It's just very readable, and when we talk about the ultra-wealthy, the ultra-rich, it be, it's naturally we're talking about the other. You just managed to talk to so many people in person— that you end up putting a very human face on a class that we do tend to sort of dehumanize. Yeah, I think we don't interact with these folks. And when we, 
you know, we see the stuff about them in the media. It's a, there's a lot, you know, and I write this stuff too for Mother Jones. I write about the advantages of the wealthy and people, you know, respond with eat the rich and, you know, these people are pigs and things like that. And, you know, part of what I was trying to do is not, I don't want to hate on people. Um, I want my readers to under, understand how the system works. And this is not just like individual greed we're talking about. Because, you know, you think about some of us, if you were in that position, would you take advantages of the things, the advantages that are given to you? Would you take advantage of that? Or would you just say, no, count it, no, just I'm going to pay the most taxes possible. <laughs> you know, I want, make, make me pay more taxes. I mean, there's just all these opportunities available. And that's because, in part, because like this, the billionaire class is really manipulating the system. But there's also this whole wealth, what some call the wealth defense industry, this huge professional class. And they're kind of mostly like 10 percenters. Uh, they are upholding the lifestyles of the 0.01% because they have these jobs that, and their income depends on servicing the needs and changing the laws so that wealthy people have all the advantages. And so this is horrible sort of cycle. It's hard to get out of. Uh, the people who accumulate this money are not necessarily bad people, and some of them are very, very nice people and well-meaning, but within this structure, you know, things get really twisted and perverted. And they also, you know, just because a lot of wealthy people, when they have the means, they want to live in a nicer place with more space and bigger houses, and so they move to these places where everybody around them is sort of the same kinds of means and you kind of start forgetting how other people live on the other side and what real people's problem even if you empathize with those problems you're going to be distant from them right well and we're all guilty of that to some extent or another and no matter everybody listening to this there is somebody on planet earth whose standard of living is about one percent of what your general wealth is and you're aware of that and you still go about your day thinking what sort of coffee will i have after lunch you know you'd think you would like to think that you change if you if you got a billion dollars you would all of a sudden become a sort of uh, uh robin hood but right. but people are who they are and we're, we're all very adaptable you get used to you you set your standards relative to the circle you know of your of your neighbors and of the the parents of the kids your kids go to school with that's unfortunately that's human nature yeah also you can't be a robin hood and be a billionaire because <laughs> you'll never you'll never be a billionaire if you have that mentality of you're going to be a Robin Hood. Right, right, unless you were unloading it as quickly as you could get it when there's not a whole lot of those. Well, like Mackenzie Scott. Right. Uh, Jeff Bezos's ex, who she is shoveling money out the door yeah. as fast as she can, and it's still not fast enough. Right. Her net worth keeps going up and up and up. I'm sure she's a terrific person, but to what extent do we think she's doing that to spite her husband? That's that's an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> I mean, no, I, no one really knows. Right, um, right. But she, I, I got to say, she's putting pressure on that class of folks to do something more meaningful because there's all you know there's at the billionaire level the philanthropy stuff so much of it is it, a lot of it's self-serving and it's not you know people are not giving away most of their wealth they're giving well you know the whole giving pledge i write about this in the book you haven't even got to that point yet but you think about, the, so the pledge is to give away a majority of your wealth. Among billionaires, well, the, the Warren Buffett thing, yeah. Yeah, that's half plus a penny. And, you know, I, if I make the pledge, I have $10 billion. So 
they say, well, eventually I'm going to give away half. Well, you're still up $5 billion plus what you have is probably going to grow. You're probably going to still have $10 billion when you die. Uh, and there are ways in which you can pass that on to your offspring without paying taxes, despite the state tax. I mean, the manipulations here are crazy. And the, the ability, like the ability to make these grand gestures and give away money, people say, oh, this is so great. This is so great. But um, you're not really sacrificing anything. And I sort of ask the question, if you're not really sacrificing anything, what kind of gesture is this philanthropy? The subtitle of your book, you know, splits the book into how the super rich really live and how their wealth harms us all. I'd like to talk about each of those halves in turn. But first, just I want to talk about some quickly some baseline stuff. I don't know if you know the answer to this question. In general terms, what percentage of super wealth in America is inherited and what percentage is self-made? And then if I can further divide that, at least based anecdotally on the people you in, interacted with, what percentage of that is people who had a stroke of of luck in in being in the right place at the right time sort of thing what percentage of super wealth super wealthy individuals made their money because they built a better mousetrap themselves personally okay well you, you just asked me like seven questions yep. so what, what, do you, what do you want to start with here the inheritors versus uh sure let's start there wealth wealth creators as they call it um i the last data i saw on this was from a couple years back. Um, and at the time, I'm not sure if it was broken down US or total, uh, but it was like of the global super wealthy, which is the, which is 30 million and up in net worth. Um, the women were much more likely to have inherited than the men, about three times as more likely to have inherited wealth. There's something like a third of them. Um, and so there were sort of, they, this is a company called WealthX that analyzes a lot of data on the wealthy. So they had broken it down to the three categories. One was, uh, they called self-made, and the other one was inheritance, and one was sort of a mixture. The fact is, if you have that much money, you're no doubt going to be investing in things, right? You're actually going to sit on this pot of money and live off of it. So all these people say, oh, yeah, well, I made a lot of my money. But they didn't really, because they made it by investing it in things. Their money made so, like, money. It's not as... Yeah, their money made money exactly, and you know, and that's the way it tends to be at these high levels. I mean, you might make your first batch of wealth by doing something and creating something, but from then on, it just grows on its own through you know this private equity dealer, this real estate deal, whatever. You're not really, you're not really doing anything, um, and that's sort of one of the one of the messed up things about our system is the fact that money just attracts money and not only is does that happen naturally in a capitalist society but the government has rigged things so to give all the advantages to that collection of money i mean just like for instance having the capital gains rate lower than the rate for wages right people say i work all day and i got a paycheck and i have have to pay you know x on it but if i have a pot of money invested and I take profits from the stock or whatever I bought, uh, it's a far lower tax rate. It, like That doesn't make any sense. It's backwards, right? If anything, it should be the opposite. I, I agree with that. I read just anecdotally something Mark Cuban said that struck with me, and I didn't have a ready-made answer for it. He said, well, okay, if I make, you know, if I my wealth increases 20% on paper one year, you want me to pay taxes on it. What about if next year my wealth decreases by 10%, do I get taxes back? Well, you don't have to pay taxes until you 
cash that money right and out. he's talking about if we were to seek oh right yeah because that actually has been proposed right um and i don't know how that would work but you i, I think it would be you know probably you would you, you would yes you would get to take the losses too as a deduction or you would get to probably weigh one year against the others right and there's loopholes in in other areas that are exactly i mean that. there's the policymakers have ways of figuring this out it's like it's it would get way down in the weeds to go to the policy stuff sure but, sure sure um so so back to the okay back to the self-made mm -hmm. stuff first of all i think the whole idea of self-made is nonsense i mean when i always ask people oh you're self-made it's did you build the roads that your products are shipped on uh did you uh did you contribute to the police and fire departments, whatever, to make society not a lawless, you know, unstable, you know, unstable mayhem, right? I mean, there's there are so many things that governments do that are crucial to having a system where you're you can go and make money. I mean, you just think about the internet. All these guys, oh, I created an app. So, well, you think about the research that went into creating. The internet, you know, it was, it was military with DARPA. Um, when the Google guys created Google, they were on a government grant. When Mark Andreessen did the first uh, web browser that he commercialized, he developed Mosaic when he was working for the government. I mean, literally working for the government. So, I mean, the government funds so much of this stuff. And then these, you know, Silicon Valley libertarians go, oh, man, the government didn't do any of this. I did it. You know, I did it because they came up with some nice enhancement of what's already there. You know, we all, you know, there's some smart people, but we all depend on our forebears and on the people who work with us and for us. Uh, so self-made to me is sort of a narcissistic conceit. You spent a lot of time with people who have or, and have made fabulous sums of money. On average, did they strike you as exceptionally talented or clever? Most of them are pretty smart people, mm -hmm. um, or they certainly are smart in their, they, but, you know, the thing is, think about it. I'm from Mother Jones, right? I, I had, I, and also, you know, getting people to talk about their wealth, it's, it's a very taboo subject. Of course. And even, probably even more so for people with a lot of wealth, because they know how they're seen in society. They know, especially now, we're talking a lot about inequality. They're seen as sort of, you know, they're on the defensive. Mm -hmm. So I had as you would imagine, and I knew this going in, a lot of rejections. And a lot of people said, I mean, I would, you couldn't just cold call these people. You had to work through networks and friends of friends of friends. Oh, yeah, I know this guy, or I know someone who knows this guy. And you can get to them. And sometimes, you know, the very rich guys would, I, I, several times it happened to me, I reached out to someone, they said, well, you have to talk to our PR team because they have to be vetted. And that's what I call the entourage. You know, these these super rich people are cushioned off from the rest of the world. They have gatekeepers. And it was actually interesting. Like I was reading a study where they were these Chicago researchers were trying to do a study of super wealthy attitudes toward politics. And it said right there in their research paper that their assistants had complained. Even their gatekeepers have gatekeepers. So, I mean, these people are hard to get to. And so several times I... I did an interview, pre-interview with their PR team, and then they got back to me. They said, you know, it sounds like a great book, but we're not going to participate. Um, so the people I did get to, I would say, probably leaned a little more towards progressive. Right. Right. So, I don't, you know, not, you know, we're not talking about the Dr. Evil here. 
that, that I talk to. It's like, those people won't talk to me, right? There was a natural bias built into who was going to talk to you, to people who were a little bit more enlightened and maybe a little bit more able on their feet. Yeah, but maybe it was also interesting that way because they could reflect on this stuff in an intelligent fashion and they could realize that they are in these situations. I mean, this one guy is a Seattle, uh, he was a CEO of a company in the first dot-com era that um, went, pub went public while he, when he was the president of the company and he got this huge windfall and uh which some of it tanked after the dot-com bust but he he was able to unload you know the equivalent of like 30 million dollars worth then and of course that's grown immensely since so um you know I, he let me come and visit him and we're sitting on his back part cheating mexican takeout and um he's just telling me about the bubble he lives in and he's like he's like thank god i don't have expensive hobbies i just he likes to bicycle and backpack he says, but then he goes on these, you know, elaborate bicycle trips through the south of France and he'll go to the parties and Dave over here is talking about his private equity play and this guy's talking about his house in Aspen. And this guy's kids actually went to um, the same school as Jeff Bezos's kids and Bill Gates' kids and Scott uh, Oakey's kids. And so, the public school. Yeah, he said... Uh, no, 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 this is a private school. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. actually, this guy's his, his in high school, his daughters are like, we want to go to the public school. And so they got a little education. You know, you got to see the other side a little bit there. Um, but they didn't have to. And uh, anyway, so he said, he said at this school, he said, there was a soccer game and somebody took a private jet to the soccer game. And it's like, oh, my God. For the kids in those, you know, the yeah. kids in those, I, I have a friend who's pretty wealthy and his kid goes to a super elite private school. And I just wonder about like the growing up around all these super privileged kids. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that do to your view of the world? You know? Yeah. I had a bit of an experience of that. I went to um, a scholarship high school on Manhattan's Upper East Side. And of course, as is the case with, you know, the Ivy League schools, there were a lot of wealthy kids that ended up there. But you really did have to pass a test to get in there. But we were surrounded by the Sacred Heart Academies, the Dominican Academies that were $30,000 a year now and are $60,000, you know, probably, uh, you know, they probably doubled since I was there. And you, you saw the effect of, of um, you mentioned in the book how it seems as if, to the extent that it's been studied, very, very, the children of very, very wealthy people might be more inclined to use and abuse drugs even than very, very poor kids, which would have been the working assumption for many, if not most of us. That was my experience. You know, mm -hmm. I, ha I had the girlfriend who went to rehab in my mm -hmm. sophomore year of high school. I didn't know that, not only did I not know kids who went to rehab back home in New Jersey as sophomores in high school, because they couldn't afford it, they actually hadn't developed that level of drug habit either, presumably because they couldn't afford to. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So yeah, I, I mean, have, the, yeah, go the ahead. private schools are full of drugs. Yes, and yes. it's like the, the kids are also—they're also looking a little bit to self-medicate from mm -hmm. the like high stress that's put on them by the overachieving parents and so forth. And that's part of this research. By the way, just just to correct you there, it's like the the poorest and the richest kids have about equal. Mm -hmm chance of of substance abuse and falling into you know low-level criminal behaviors <laughs> except of course it's the poor kids who get caught uh for doing those things but you're right. talking about cheating stealing things like that um when you are from a wealthy family you have a cushion 
I mean, you have, a, you have parents who will hire you a good lawyer if you get in trouble or can send you to an expensive rehab. Right. And when you're really poor, it's not so much that way. And the thing is, our society kind of conflates poverty with all these social ills. There's plenty of social ills at the upper end, you'll find out. Right. Somebody, somebody I was talked to about the book, um, she's not in it, who's an, an heiress, and she said, oh, you should really do something on, on the terrible like, drug and alcohol problem among the super rich like adults. And I said, that's interesting because you know, like, there's this problem with the kids. Uh, and it's, it's so the middle people who are more middle income, the kids have less issues. Right. So let's talk a little bit about how, how the super rich really live, which is the first half of the, the subtitle. My favorite detail by far was, I don't know if anybody actually built this, just the idea of an infinity moat around someone's <laughs> castle. It just, yeah, it, no, it, no, it, no, that was, a bit, yeah, there was an infinity moat. Um, <laughs> Terrific. That, that was uh, the Opus. That was um, this, one of the giga mansions in Los Angeles, this guy, Niall Miami, who is this uh, former Hollywood producer turned into a giga mansion builder. And he, his latest thing was called The One. He, it was, I think, God, what was it? Uh, like 105,000 square feet. You know, and it had like things, it would be, it was, it was so over the top. It was like 20 bars and uh, 20 kitchens. I mean, you, you, they have more kitchens than most rooms have, or most houses have rooms. I mean, the real estate stuff is pretty nuts when you get into it. And, and I've seen some just like giant, houses and it's like a couple living there with like maybe a couple kids who then they're going to be gone and so you're in this vast space and i mean one thing one thing that happens with super rich families i mean like especially like really really super rich families is the parents tend to be counterintuitive you know it's counterintuitive to what it used to be like you think of the the, the leisure class well the zillionaires these days work all the time um, that's part of their whole shtick. I mean, not everybody, but, um, you know, it's not like retire at 40. You retire at 40, you go to the golf course and you're hanging out with 70-year-old guys and pretty soon you're like, oh, what am I doing, right? So these guys go back, start another company or whatever they like to do. And, um, but even the ones who don't work, you know, there's, they socialize, they travel all the time. A lot of times kids growing up in those families are really lonely because their parents are always off somewhere and engaged and they, and they get raised by the, 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 the nannies and uh, the governesses and all of this. Uh, and sometimes there's a security detail. They, the, they get, um, they start, you know, the little kid starts befriending his agent. <laughs> so it's like, that's his, that's his playmate now because like they've got to vet the other kids who are going to come over and play with them. Um, it, it's a weird little world. For sure. And then in addition to that, you mentioned how, and I don't know this would have necessarily occurred to me, on top of that, when you're very, very wealthy, you're able to send your kids through a sort of bumper bowling version of life mm. yeah. where they they can't fail because there are too many things in place to keep them from bottoming out, not necessarily on drugs, bottoming out on I can't do multiplication and having right. to recover right. from that and, and build the skills that, you know, overcoming obstacles personally builds in quote unquote normal people yeah i mean i would say that's not that's not just a characteristic of the super rich mm -hmm. that's a characteristic even of the upper 10 percent say demographic where you can afford to have special coaches and tutors and sat 
people and people who help you with your college essays. And then, you know, like I said, like the lawyer, if you're caught shoplifting or whatever, you know, there's, or, or if you're de you have depression, they can afford to pay a therapist. Um, but I think that gets exacerbated as you move up and it gets like, it becomes like, what are you responsible for yourself? You know, are you ever going to fail? I mean, you know, it is, this is not like, there's nothing evil here. It's like parents have all have good intentions for their children and super rich parents just have these incredible resources. And maybe if they are people who didn't inherit, they made their money by building up a company or something. There's a lot of struggles that go into building a big enterprise and they might've gone through painful periods and they're trying the the point is they're trying to insulate their children from having the same kind of struggles that maybe they did. And in doing that, as one guy said it to me, you're, you're depriving them of the unique adventures of life, right? The, the knowing that you always have money to fall back on can kind of create a weirdness for people who know they're going to inherit. Somebody's, somebody I quoted in the book, um, what did I call her, Elizabeth, uh, she was just talking about the inheritors she knows and how their lives are sort of vague and blasé and strange. And the people I've talked to who inherited, there's sort of a, you know, there's this knowledge that if you get go get a job and the boss is a jerk and there's, you're facing challenges at work, hey, I'll just quit because I can go without the money. Um, but there's something to be said for pushing through things. And that's, a, that's where you kind of develop as a person and grow as a person. I mean, obviously, there are situations you would want to get out of at work. Yeah. But there are also situations where you, you're trying to overcome a challenge. And I, one guy I talked to who had always been sort of over-supported by his dad his whole life. I mean, first of all, he it, that screwed him up. He was like going out and he would spend profligately, never learned how to control his spending. And he got himself like deep in debt, even though he had like a, you know, in college or whatever, he had a five or six thousand dollar a month allowance in addition to just whatever money his parents were giving. And so he had all this money, but even when he got it like a pretty good paying job, he just spent it all. He never learned how to economize or save money or like not go to the expensive restaurants instead of like cooking for yourself. Um, so it just left him unprepared for the real world. And he, he actually flailed quite a bit because of it. He was not a happy guy. Um, yeah, okay. Well, next thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, let, let's move on, actually, to how the wealth of the ultra-wealthy harms us all. I mean, if indeed it does. Like, let, let me ask you something. Just dumb question. I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here. If I'm a peasant and I'm growing potatoes and the landlord comes by and takes 90% of my potatoes, it's easy for me to see how his wealth is harming me mm -hmm. if someone in silicon valley decides to make an app and throw a bunch of electric scooters on my corner it's going to create some urban blight on the other hand i can take a scooter for a couple of bucks anytime i need to get somewhere and don't feel like walking if that guy makes a billion dollars what's that to me well first off you know it's, it's not just that guy but it's the way that guy and his advisors have sort of helped rig the system so that they gain the most of every dollar. Um, so that when you go and pay sales taxes, for instance, if you're, 
you know, if you're poorer, you spend a much higher proportion of your income on sales tax because high-end luxury items have all, like, they've figured out how to get them tax-free, right? Not either by, you know, getting around it. So I have a kind of a funny thing in there where you, if you buy a yacht, you can take it into international waters and you close the deal in international waters and you there's this magazine, Marlin magazine, it says, oh, you, you got to take a picture of the, the buyer and the seller and your lawyers or whatever with the GPS um, to prove that this was done in international waters so you don't have to pay any state sales taxes, you know. Um, there's all sorts of things like that. And then like things like legal services, lawyers, accounting firms, uh, all this kind of stuff is also untaxed. And these are services used by the wealthy. In fact, they're used by the wealthy to grow their wealth. There's a, the, and the fact that this whole system exists, this whole industry essentially exists, which is, you know, it's a $70 trillion or whatever industry uh, of advisors who know all the ins and outs of the law. And they have tremendous advantage to people that already have great means. So what, what happens is the harm there is they're draining the government coffers. They're making it very hard for the government to pay for all the basic services, which is why you have, you know, everything's a mess during COVID, right? Because the, the government, public health departments don't have money, you know, and there's not disease surveillance. And, um, and the, you know, if you read like Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, that's all sort of about all the things that the government does that we never even think about or hear about. And in some cases, because lawmakers have passed rules saying the government can't talk itself up, like certain departments are forbidden from talking about, for, from promoting the work they do, even though they, you know, for instance, uh, NOAA, which does all the like hurricane projection stuff, they've gotten very sophisticated about predicting where a hurricane is going or bad foul weather floods, these things that are affecting all of us and giving forewarning, you know. And so all these companies like AccuWeather or you know, whatever, they pick up the government data, repackage it and sell it. Uh, and But we think, you know, oh, that's not just coming from this company, but it's not, it's coming from our tax dollars. Uh, I mean, if you look at, if you look at um, wealthy areas in the roads in wealthy areas, they're beautiful, you know, everything's you know, well-groomed, you go to the poor areas and the roads are a mess. I mean, all these sorts of things is because it's because we're draining government resources. Now, everybody and nobody likes I mean, the government is a big, slogging, inefficient thing. Sure. Makes a lot of mistakes. It's cumbersome. It's frustrating as hell. And so it's easy to demonize. Uh, but it's also essential and it's essential in times of crisis. And right. It's literally it, better than nothing. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like who maintains, you know, stability and order in a society and fixes things, I mean, who do we depend on, right? Um, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But, right. uh, but as it stands, public resources include, as it stands, like the system we have now, it's sort of like lower level taxpayers are actually subsidizing rich taxpayers, which is not the way it should be. Of course not. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it's just, it, the more you look into these sort of structures and the way taxes are structured, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Well, let me ask you something, a follow-up to that. Again, just a very, very naive question, but when 
I believe, regardless of what we might want to hear, might want to believe about far right wing America, whatever, I believe that at least 50% of the population, the voting population, wants the very wealthy to pay more taxes. The very very wealthy, by definition, are at most 5% of the population. By what means are the rich able to perpetuate and even extend this set of rules that benefits them at the expense of the rest of us? Well, the very the very rich people with, you know, 100 million, 200 million and up, many of them start what's called a family office. These things have proliferated. Now, you don't, most people had, you know, I, I actually threw it out on my Facebook page to ask my followers. I said, hey, survey, who here knows? And, and, you know, my Facebook followers are not a bunch of, you know, uneducated people. They're educated people. Who knows what a family office is? The only people who could did know were like lawyers. Right. They're the only ones who knew. Nobody else. set them up for rich people. Right. Right. Exactly. So you have these family offices and they actually have sort of trade trade organizations that get together and they have, they have a lobbying organization that goes and makes sure that their activities can remain opaque and unregulated. Uh, And they mainly exist to sort of, steward the wealth of the family and make sure that it gets passed on to grows and gets passed on to future generations. And they will have like, sometimes some of these things have like dozens of employees. You'll have aircraft specialists and you'll have uh, estate planners and you have all these people. So it's like a private army of, of professionals that these very rich families have. And they also have lobbyists and their comp- the, the, they tend to be business owners, these people. And the businesses all have lobbyists. So on one hand, you got guys like Bezos and the billionaires. Oh, oh COVID, you know, we're going to open up our wallets. We're going to give more money. Oh, we're going to give for racial justice. We're going to do all these things. On the other side of the coin, they have lobbyists trying to get things into the COVID relief bills that are huge tax breaks for them. And they were they succeeded in that. Um, massive tax breaks. In fact, if you look at the, you know, the PPE loans, the um that were given to businesses, A, they went first to like favored clients of big banks. That's how it kind of worked out. And second of all, they, both of the Republicans and Democrats together passed a rule that said, you can not only, we're, we're going to forgive your loan and you can deduct it from your expenses. So they were getting like a double cut. And because of the way the loans were distributed, that money is going to like very wealthy business owners. Like the mass, it's like a $120 billion giveaway with that rule. Um, so, I mean, things like that. It's, it's their ability to manipulate the political process that really is what where the wealth causes harm to others. Uh, they, I mean, they're hoarding the resources of the society and leaving other people with less. I mean, if you look at the public schools in areas that aren't wealthy, they're a mess. But if you go to public school in Woodside, California, or Ross, California, they're fabulous because the rich locals set up a foundation, and that's a text, you know, it's a, it's a charity. And so they can raise millions of dollars for their local schools, feed it into all sorts of programs and extra, you know, enrichment. And these schools are beautiful. They're, they're basically private schools, but they're public schools. And then they can go and say, oh, my kids go to public school. I'm just an everyman, right? But in fact, it's like the parents from poor districts are subsidizing these very wealthy public schools. So, I mean, th- there's a whole range of things like that. Um, 
The other thing I would say is just like I said before, there's this whole wealth defense industry, which is not the one percenters, it's the 10 percenters who are, it's, it's become in their financial interest to um, further the advantages of, the, of their clients who are the super wealthy. You mentioned, you know, having access to government and, and obviously a way that you can have that access is through campaign contributions. I've been trying in different ways to wrap my head around that for a while, but it just seems to always come down to things were pretty bad. And then there was McCain-Feingold that cleaned things up a little bit. And then there was Citizens United. And now things are bad again. And since that decision came from the Supreme Court, not from Congress, they may be bad forever. Is the issue more nuanced than that? I think so. I okay, mean, good. There, there are I'm glad things. To hear that. Uh, I mean, I I have delved too deeply mm-hmm. into what could be made. You know, it, it's really a matter of how it's structured. Um, I, I, I'd have to look at those court cases to tell you, but you know, I, I did talk to Russ Feingold for this book. You did, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so you know, he he's very frustrated. I mean, this is his signature, really, one his signature thing as a Absolutely. senator. And McCain-Feingold, there's almost nothing left of it. Uh, I mean, for since the, the very first campaign finance act was like back in like 1916 or something like that. And back then it banned corporate donations to politicians. But that's over now. I mean, now corporations can give all they want to, you know, PACs for politicians. They can give massive amounts, unlimited amounts to political parties and their committees um and and much of it can be hidden too through these various you know these various methods so it wasn't just citizens united actually it was like four or five different federal court decisions that gutted the whole thing i mean there's there's not much left anymore uh and you know if you look at there's been studies of sort of who a who expects access and who gets it uh and and it was something like, I mean, I think I, in the book I said there was uh, this research done. They, they, they interviewed, they surveyed very wealthy people, like one percenters, not, you know, they vary uh, in wealth. Because uh, even among the one percent, the wealth distribution is so skewed, it's like crazy, you know. It's like if you take the one percent, uh, it's like looking at, you know, when you look at the entire population, and then you look at the ten percent and the one percent. There's all this, yep. you see these charts where the wealth just grows and grows and grows. Well, you can do the same thing if you take the one percent and you divide it up into the point one percent and the point oh oh one percent, and you see the same chart because you know because wealth begets wealth. Um, anyway, so so they surveyed these people. They found that forty percent of the one percenters they they had surveyed within the past six months had reached out to their senator congressperson with some kind of request. And then they looked, then there was a similar survey with like thousands of just everyday voters. And they had, like very few of them had reached out at all in the past like six years or something. <laughs> I mean, it's, and, and the attitude among that group is like, well, it's not, no one will listen to us. Whereas the people at the top figure that you're going to get a call back. That's right. You know, that's right. You would call your senator too if your senator was going to call you back. Yeah, or even at least an aide or something. Yeah, that's and right. Call, call you back and say, "Hey, what can we do for you?" Oh, you don't like this policy? I'll talk to the senator. You know, 
they have that kind of access and they also have that kind of access because you know they give they they get invited to fundraisers they meet yep. people in person you know having a personal connection to somebody uh really makes a difference yeah it's you know you you are heard and there's also there's a lot of evidence that uh, among the very upper class like the the concerns are different because for instance you send your kids to private schools so you don't want to fund public schools i mean that's the attitude of a lot of them. Um, they, there's less interest in envi environmental protections. There's much more of a sort of pro-business deregulation kind of vibe. So it, that really differs from the point of view of the public at large. But they're the ones who get hurt. Right. You know, and I wanted to ask you about the way the, the distribution of wealth works, particularly the ways in which it's changed. And in the book, you apologize for including a couple of graphs. I've actually found the pictures very, very, very helpful and and instructive. Correct me if I'm wrong. Since 1970, the wealth for the general population has barely risen at all. For the top 1%, it's gone up fairly nicely. For the 0.01%, it's quadrupled. That's it's, ex it's exponential. It, you look at the curve, it's like a big, it goes, it gets steeper and steeper until it's straight up. So let me just throw an unfun theory at you. This is something I've always kind of wondered about. I wonder how much of that has to do with the ways in which wealth is created nowadays because a Henry Ford couldn't help but be a rising tide that raised thousands of boats because whole cities grew up around the factories that were necessary and the human labor that was needed to make a bunch of cars. The guy, I'm assuming it was a guy or guys, who made the bird scooters need 0.1% of the staff. Yeah. To what extent does that just explain the fact that the rising wealth of American GDP or wealth, however you want to measure it, hasn't been shared? And what can you actually do about that short of heavily taxing the rich and or, you know, straight up government uh, handouts, guaranteed basic in income kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, you could do both of those things. But sure, uh, of course you could. there's also, you know, there's been a lot of talk among politicians about policies to even Trump was talking about this, you know, to discourage offshoring, mm -hmm, to right. do your manufacturing here. Now, the cost of products would go up, of course, because the labor costs would go up. But maybe that's not a bad thing, you know, because you're and if you pay your laborers more, they can afford to buy the products. I mean, that's sort of one of the big um, that was what Nick Hanauer, his capitalist argument for raising the minimum wage. He would he would say, hey, look. You know, you want to be rich. Well, you want your employees to be able to afford the things you make, you know, so pay them, um, pay them, pay them a decent wage. And that's not even a decent wage. I mean, it's what is it, you know, 30,000 a year if you get minimum wage, barely gets you an apartment in Oakland, California. Um, so, so where were we? Uh, what we <laughs> I went off track. Don't even worry about it. Um, it just seems like where we are. I feel like we're in another gilded age. Somebody in the book um, uh, put it this way to you. I think you quoted somebody. Over an amount of time, the cleverest 10% of people figure out a way to hoard the lion's share of the wealth. Mm -hmm. Then there's outraged, and then something happens to even things out a little they, bit. They, you kick, know, oh, they kick over the ant hill. That's right, right, right. Said. Exactly. We all get our crust of bread. We all get to eat cake. And then slowly but surely the process repeats itself. And this is the way that I feel about corruption. And if you want to call this corruption for like, you know, for, use the term for now. 
it's like cleaning your, your shower. It's never really clean. You can get it scrubbed perfectly clean, and then the second you turn your back, the mildew starts growing again. So we're just due for another reckoning. Are we going to get it? Has it already started? If, it, if so, what does it look like? If not, what is it going to have to look like? Well, you know, it's funny because we've seen some of it happening with the, some, the later COVID relief bill. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there's actually on the bottom, there's been this, this family support, like child support is actually a huge anti-poverty thing, but it's not just about anti-poverty. It's also, you know, that, that raises up the people at the very bottom. Right. Um, but you also want to even the society out if you are a progressive politician. I mean, the trouble is that that only goes so far because there is such thing as the political elite these people in government tend to be wealthy, even Democrats, and wealth is almost as big as partisanship when it comes to this kind of thing. Now, I I just wrote for Mother Jones yesterday uh, a piece on retirement savings, which is like, uh, seems like a really dull subject, right? Retirement, so the government sponsors, you know, gives tax advantages to all sorts of different kinds of retirement savings plan, your 401k, if you have an IRA, your Keo or whatever you call it. I mean, there's numerous kinds of plans, some sponsored by employers and some, some just sort of government accounts. And these things cost the U.S. government hundreds of billions of dollars a year in revenues. I mean, it's the biggest tax-related expenditure out there. We never think about this. It's, if that was actually news to me, I was like, oh my God, $1.9 trillion from 20 to 24. That's a lot of money. And the fact is, it's going that those subsidies are going overwhelmingly to the richest people. That's right. We, we, when you think of Roth, Roth IRA, four hundred one k, this is these are buzzwords for a prosperous middle class and part of the promise of the American dream that if you work hard, you can retire comfortably. And yet, if the ultra rich are being extended the same benefits as middle class people, whatever that means anymore, well then. The savings, what they're not paying in taxes, is exponentially greater than what you or I can expect to see. Yeah, yeah. So these bills are sold as a way to help. You know, you all see that they all say, oh, we're going to you know, help American families save more for retirement. Yeah. It's like, and that's all true, but which American families? Right. And, and actually, you know, almost half of American families don't have a retirement account. Some don't have access to it. Some can't afford to participate in them. Uh, because they don't have any spare money from their paycheck to set aside. And so what happens is you, you keep having these bipartisan bills. Because I was just, you were talking about, well, what can be done? Yep. Well, I mean, this is a big driver of inequality. Mm-hmm. Because you are helping someone pad up, in some cases, you know, millions and millions of dollars in their retirement funds. And then that stuff's going to keep growing until the end of their life. And then they just pass that on to their kids. And then you're starting a new generation of inequality. Um, I mean, the estate tax situation is ridiculous. I mean, it's just nobody's paying the estate tax, essentially. Uh, there, was, there was a woman who was uh, Lily uh, Bedletter or something like that. I can't remember her last name, but uh, she was, she's basically now, um, she was being confirmed when I wrote about her as Biden's like number two in the Treasury Department on tax policy. And she had written a whole like academic paper on inheritance taxes it's like the turns out the inheritance taxes are like effective rate is like two percent and that's uh, not much at all right no that's right yeah yeah relative to uh what you would pay on tax for a 
a bag of chips at 7-Eleven. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's like 10, 8 or 10%. Right? <laughs> Depending on where and, you are, yeah. And not income, you know, same with, you know, income taxes, what's 37 is the maximum right now. Right. A very happy takeaway from your book, I think, is the very strong anecdotal evidence that what we lack in money doesn't necessarily mean what we lack in happiness. I remember there's some aphorism, I forget who's attributed, uh, it's attributed to the difference between rich people and poor people is that poor people think money would make them happy. Mm -hmm. Basically, you say that rising out of economic distress is associated with tremendous um, rises in personal happiness, but really you don't see any more with any greater accumulation of wealth. So mo if you're listening to this and you're not worried about, you know, you're not overly worried about your credit card bill right now, you're about as happy as money can make a person. Yeah, that's more or less the case. I mean, you can certainly have more fun if you yeah. have a little more money. You can go on fancier vacations and you can travel more and so forth. And, you know, I think there are probably some people I talk to who would dispute that. They say, oh, yeah, I'm happier because I can do all this stuff. But by and large, you've asked people about their own happiness. They they look at a rate. They probably never get to talk to the super, super rich people. But if you look at, you know, you know, fairly sizable range, basically it tops out at, you know, somewhere around. Well, it depends on how you measure, but anywhere from like sixty five to one hundred thousand dollars range of. Uh, so it's basically if your needs are met and you're not stressed out all the time uh, and you, you know, get to have a little bit of discretionary income, you know, you, you people are fine. And, and and it's actually when you get into situations where you're in a community and you have a house and all of a sudden your neighbor builds a bigger house and the one across the street builds a bigger, that, that makes people unhappy. Um, they, they get, it's interesting, there was a whole thing on house satisfaction that I cite. There's a study and mm -hmm. people, as their neighbors build bigger houses, their house satisfaction goes down. They start comparing, people, people compare themselves to the people around them. Yes. And so if you're wealthy and you live in this community that's always trying to like get the bigger, better thing, you know, keeping up with the fancy Joneses, as one person put it in the book, it could drive you crazy. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 almost bound to, and again, it's just a, a sad wrinkle of of human nature. Yeah, if you've got central air, you're you're kicking ass. But right. people people will even volunteer that that if I forget the exact survey, but uh, if if you were to have your salary double, but all of your neighbors were to see their salaries quadruple. You would just as soon stay with where you are right now. People know that going in. They don't even need to experience that to know that they would rather feel relatively wealthy than absolutely wealthy. Yeah, you know, my dad, uh, he went to, uh, what do you say, Myanmar or Burma? What's the correct way to say it these days? I'm going to go uh, with Myanmar. Yeah, okay. So they, you remember they at one point they opened up for tourism. Yeah. And it just happened my dad decided he was going to go. He and his wife were going to go. So they went there and he, he came back and was telling me about it. And he said, one thing that really struck him is the like the labor technology there was just so primitive. Like people didn't even have like wheelbarrows. They, they would carry big stones on their backs and things like that. And his other observation is people just had people were so poor there, but they didn't know they were poor. And, and so people seemed kind of, you know content to some degree i mean of course they're under this awful regime but yeah. uh it wasn't it didn't seem to be the wealth that was it was upsetting them so 
Yeah, so that's absolutely right. There's actually a guy in the book who he worked for a hedge fund and one year they offered him $3.8 million bonus and he was pissed off because he thought he should get more. And he was just like nine years out of college. And uh, so that's sort of when he had this whole revelation and ended up quitting the industry. He's, and he's, I said, well, yeah, well, why were you upset? And he's like, because the guy who gave me that bonus cleared $400 million that year. And, uh, you know, you, you, when you're surrounded by such obscene wealth, your expectations just go crazy. I, I remember that anecdote. And the crazy thing is you, you can put yourself in his shoes. You really can. When you know that your, business, your boss made $400 million and you feel like you made him the lion's share of that and you think mm. you're really going to get seven and then it's three, it's crazy, but it's true. I think he's, <laughs> he's not the only... You don't have to be an awful person to be frustrated by that, no matter how insane that might be. On your Twitter, I think it was, you shared a photo of your book on Elizabeth Warren's desk. <laughs> right. It must feel nice. I mean, you don't have... You know, if you're a billionaire, you can get your senator to call you back. This is another way to have access to the highest rungs of power, to, to, um, to, to write a book and to be able to know that your ideas and your research are reaching those levels. Do you have any evidence she's read your book? I have no evidence she's read it. <laughs> I, I was just, uh, here's, here's the, what was encouraging to me. I, she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I sent it to her in Cambridge. So she clearly had taken the book with her to Washington so maybe she read it on the train or something. Yeah. It was interesting. In that picture, I kind of zoomed in and I could see, I put a letter, I put, le, you know, I put, would put a letter to when I sent a book to someone like that. Mm-hmm. And there was my little letter there in that picture. So I That's said, terrific. She, she kept it as a bookmark or something. So anyway, oh, so the piece I wrote yesterday, I just heard from a source that um, he had sent it to some senator's tax aides. And one of the aides told him, Oh, the senator already forwarded that to me and told me to investigate it. No kidding. Yeah, so that actually that's that you know, that's when you know as a journalist you're actually doing something. Right. So so often we we write a piece and you know, some people send it around on Twitter or whatever, but we have no idea if it's having any impact. So when we know it's getting to somebody who has who has uh the ability to change things, that's a good feeling. That's a terrific feeling. Congratulations on that. That's actually really, really cool. I, I'm, I'm enjoying the book, even though uh, I've already spoken to you now. I'm going to finish it. I look forward to finishing it. As I said, the information on paper seems like it ought to be very dense, but it's, it's, it's very readable. I mean, this could almost be beach reading, despite the fact that, it is, uh, that it's covering something that's not um, you know, trifling in the slightest. So I'm enjoying it, and I recommend everybody else check it out. The book is called Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth harms us all. And of course, as you mentioned, you are a regular contributor to Mother Jones. Thank you so much for your time and for this book, Michael Mechanic. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to The Tully Show. Before I let you go, let me remind you there is plenty more where this kind of thing came from at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. I already told you about this week's edition of Tully Time. I want to remind you remind you that the episode I put up two weeks ago is free and open to the public. Anybody can listen to it free of charge at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. Thanks for being here, either there, here, or somewhere else. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. Thanks.